Hey, it's Flaves, and welcome to Climate Changers, a podcast where we recognize and celebrate the heroes working to create a new and sustainable resource and energy economy. Today, I have an interview with Tom Check, award-winning conservationist and director of the One World, One Water Center at Metropolitan State University in Denver. I signed Tom's very first book when I was a new editor at John Wiley & Sons Publishers. It was my first signing and the first of Tom's many published titles. Welcome, Tom. Good morning, Ryan. Glad to be here. I'm curious to hear your view of how changes in global climate will impact water resources. The intensity of hurricanes has been predicted to get stronger and of longer duration because of global warming. And we've seen that with Hurricane Dorian that pummeled the Caribbean and South Carolina. We're also seeing intense melting of the glaciers in Greenland, for example, where in some cases it's frightening. James Baylog has done a lot of work in Greenland, and there's a great video online where they actually took an image every 30 minutes of the glacier melting. And then you can see it before your eyes over many years, the receding of glaciers and so forth. And then in one episode, there's a chunk of the glacier the size of Manhattan that calves off of the main glacier and goes out to sea. You know, we're seeing record temperatures in September in Colorado. We're seeing the snowmelt occurring a bit sooner in the springtime. We're just seeing a general increase in temperatures, which affects snowpack, which affects precipitation. And we just need to gear up for a changing climate in the coming decades. Well, you mentioned glaciers, and I know that you were recently in Canada. Could you tell my audience about your observations of the glaciers that you visited there? This is fascinating. This was northwest of Banff in the National Park. It was the Columbia Ice Fields. And one of the glaciers, there were signs placed. One was, I think, 1920. Here's where the glacier was in 1920. And then if you drove maybe half a mile upstream or uphill of the glacier, there was a sign for 1950. And you drive another mile. There's where the glacier was 1980. And then you have to drive further up the glacier field to where it actually is today. And it's just melting like crazy. How do you debate evidence that you see with your own eyes that something's happening in parts of the world and because of warmer temperatures? There are a lot of changes. In fact, we've had an unusually wet year here in Colorado. Uh, mm -hmm. The hills are still greener than I can remember in any prior mm -hmm. September. Uh, right. We even had times with the snowpack reaching over 400% this winter. Still, we live in a high altitude desert where this is not normal. What changes and challenges should we expect in the West and how can we prepare? Oh, good question. So you're right. This year was extremely wet. And what's intriguing about the weather in Colorado and many parts of the world, here we could have no more precipitation in the future for eight months. We could have uh, months where precipitation is a half inch or less. The amount of rain and snowfall we get in Colorado can turn on a dime to where it's extremely wet. And then we head right into a drought phase with absolutely no warning. And that's what occurred here in 2002, where it was exceedingly dry. In fact, it was so dry in our backyard where we have some bluegrass. If you had thrown a burning match on that lawn, it would have set it on fire. This was May of 2002. I've never seen a landscape so dry. The sagebrush on the prairie actually turned black because of a lack of water. And if you went to that same spot today, it would be about as the healthiest looking sagebrush as you'll ever find in yucca and so forth. So we need to prepare for quick changes in precipitation patterns. It can be wet for a while. It can turn exceedingly dry very quickly. We just have to prepare for that. And moving to a more global perspective, what challenges should we expect and how can we best prepare? 
I think the same thing. So I was in Italy a few years ago, and they were in the midst of their worst drought in over 150 years in central Italy. And the hills, the wheat fields and the unirrigated pastures and so forth, it honestly looked like you were in northern New Mexico in August. It was very, very dry. And I looked at the precipitation patterns for Tuscany and Umbria, the central part of Italy. And precipitation is more like Iowa. So we should have been seeing lush and green fields there, and we weren't. So again, I think more persistent droughts, changes in precipitation patterns, warmer temperatures, and with that comes snowmelt occurring more quickly in the springtime. Living in Colorado, it's as if now later on, it's be like living in southern Colorado or northern New Mexico. It's just going to be warmer. In other parts of the world, because of changing warming weather patterns, the weather could actually turn a bit wetter. It's almost impossible for scientists to predict what precipitation and and weather patterns be 100 years from now in an area that experiences temperatures one or two degrees warmer than today. It'll be different. In some places, it'll be drier. In some places, it could actually be a bit wetter. Well, sticking with the global perspective, how has the scarcity of water impacted the migration that we've seen in the Middle East and Central America over the past years? Yeah, you know, and so much of that uh, terrible tragedy is occurring because of internal conflict between governments, between different groups of people, and their war zones in some places. And where does the water come from for the refugees? Well, here on campus at Metropolitan State University of Denver in Colorado, we actually had donated by Denver Botanic Gardens an atmospheric water harvester, which looks like a large solar panel, but it's able to extract three to five liters of water from the atmosphere per day. And so the idea of this technology, which was developed in Arizona, is to take it to some of these refugee camps in drier climates of the world and have hundreds of them in order to extract drinking water from the atmosphere. It's not unlike in some ways the fog harvesters that are used on the west coast of Chile, where there's persistent fog and moisture coming in off the Pacific Ocean. And through a series of specially designed nets, the moisture, the fog droplets can be captured and then directed into containers where it provides the water supply for small communities in that area. Well, it's inspiring to hear how technology can, in some ways, come to the rescue, despite how horrid that situation is. Can you tell me about any other interesting and innovative new technologies that can help us maintain existing or to even create new water resources? I think one that's at the forefront is desalinization. And so we're seeing the energy costs for that sort of technology going down to where more municipalities, California and the East. Australia are building large desalination plants to use seawater or brackish groundwater and to make it potable, to make it usable to, to drink and use in the home. So that's a new technology that's increasingly being used. Downside is when the brine is disposed, too often it's placed back in the ocean and that cannot be healthy for marine wildlife. And so the issues of desalinization are, what do you do with the brine, the salty water that's left over from the process? And then second, the high energy costs. An extreme amount of energy is required to remove salts from ocean water or brackish groundwater. And so that's a problem, the consuming energy to create clean water, it's a double-edged sword. It's that water energy nexus problem. That's interesting. And it's, it's a feedback loop, right? Because then yep. the energy that we're using, depending on where it comes from, of course, could feed back into the greenhouse gases that are causing the climate change that create a lot of these problems to begin with. 
Absolutely. And if the energy comes from a power plant that burns coal or natural gas, you got those issues. If it's coming from hydropower, that should be a lot cleaner, but you got the transmission line losses and perhaps environmental issues caused by damming a river and backing it up in order to create the fall necessary to generate the hydropower. So often, whatever we do, it's never a clean, good, bad, right or wrong issue. It's quite often it's gray. So Tom, you're clearly passionate about your work with students. Could you tell me more about that work and what traits you see in the new generation of water stewards that gives you hope for the future? It's so interesting to work with students that are passionate about water stewardship, water resources. And that's something I didn't see 20 years ago or so. It seems that the college students today and here at Metropolitan State University of Denver, our average age is 26, I believe it is. So it's a bit older student population, but there are students passionate about sustainability, about environmental protection, about the future of water resources in our area. Population growth and climate change are quite often their top concerns. And what the other part that's intriguing to me with college students today is that they actually want to do something about it. And in some cases, they'll create their own companies. They'll look into developing startups. They don't just worry about it or just talk about it. They actually go out and do something. And the idea of making a million dollars or becoming famous, those are not at the top of their priority list. They're more concerned about making a difference and protecting the, our limited resources. And it's a wonderful perspective that I did not either notice or did not see 10, 20 years ago. So that's a wonderful change, I believe, in this next generation. That's inspiring. And I am intrigued by the minor that you've created at Metropolitan State in that it is multidisciplinary. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So about six or seven years ago, uh, Metropolitan State University of Denver received a grant to start a water studies program. And part of our work on that is to create a water studies minor or certificate, which is either 15 or 18 credit hours that can be used with any academic major at our university. So since we've started, we've had 150 51 students sign up for our water studies minor certificate. The majors are political science, history, teacher education, art. I think we had one music major, environmental studies, biology, chemistry, all the sciences. I was working with a faculty member and she used her freshman lit 101 class for like 100 students or more. And the theme for the entire semester was water around the world from an English perspective. And she was passionate about water and her students were interested more in the literary aspects or how water stewardship affects us in our daily lives. And so it's been a pleasure and a joy to work with our university from the university president all the way down to administrative staff that are passionate about protecting our water resources, learning more about it, and then make a difference in the world from their interest area, again, which could be art, could be political science, could be history. So really enjoyed working on this program and it continues to grow. And it, we've developed a partnership with Denver Botanic Gardens where we get to use their resources for research and for internships and for public outreach, which has been absolutely wonderful. Well, it's great to finish on a positive note. Still, some of the issues that we've discussed today are at a magnitude where it may seem difficult for any individual to have an impact. Can you tell me what one person can do to make a difference? 
we were visiting about that exact question in a class here yesterday on campus. The place to start is to start with yourself and with your home. You can do simple things. Conserve water when you are cleaning, when you're washing, when you're cooking. The bigger impact will be if you water outdoor gardens or lawns or things of that nature. Really pay attention how much water you're using there and look into more xeric plants. Monitor your water use outside because generally about half the water that's used in a city is for outdoor irrigation, which could be backyards, gardens, parks, golf courses, things of that nature. So one person can make a difference right there in their own home and in their backyard. The second place then is to look in your neighborhood. If, there's, if you're part of a homeowners association or your parents are, look at how they're managing their water. They irrigate way excessively. Well, then go, go talk to that board of directors and try to encourage them to be more responsible with their use of water in the HOA. If you have a neighborhood park and you see the city watering in the heat of the day when it's 100 degrees or when it's windy, contact the water department in your local community and, and visit with someone and find out what can they do to perhaps be better stewards of the water situation. Then the next step is to get more involved in groups. Perhaps it's a neighborhood association. Perhaps it's an environmental group at your school where you work as a team to make a difference in your community, which could be river cleanups. It could be working with your water district or your water agency to reduce how much water is used in common areas. A person can go anywhere from in your house to your community to your neighborhood. And then if you want to get even more broad than that, get involved in a board of directors of your local water district or of your city or of a state environmental agency. And a person can make a big difference there. So one person can make a difference. Start in your own home and in your yard if you have one and go from there. Well, thanks, Tom. This has been a wonderful and enlightening conversation. I really appreciate your time and look forward to future conversations. Thank you very much, Ryan. Every episode of Climate Changers has a call to action posted in the show notes. Each call to action has been curated to make it easy for you to help create the changes that we discussed today. Thank you for joining Climate Changers. Until next time.